episode of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. And my good friend Troy is in the virtual space with me. Troy, how the hell are you? I'm very good. Thanks, Brian. I'm very, very good. I was listening to one of our earlier episodes where I called you Pastor Brian and you got quite upset. You, you got a bit triggered when I called you that. So how about Reverend Brian? Will that work? Um, yeah, look, it's better. It's better. I, I can handle reverence. Let's let's stick with just Brian though. I'm I'm more comfortable with that. Less trigger points for me, but it it did catch me off guard. So fuck you. So hey Brian, good to see you. <laughs> thanks, thanks Reverend Troy. And Reverend Troy, who do we have with us today? I mean, this is someone that is a whole lot of awesomeness, but it's someone who had a, a really big impact on you. So I'm going to throw to you to do the intro for this amazing guest. Yeah, this person had a massive impact on me when I was really hardcore deconverting. I mean, we're talking beyond deconstructing, I was deconverting. And I was living in China at the time, and I used to listen to his radio program. He and his wife have a radio program. And it was, I don't even know if it was podcasting back then, I was just going to the website, but it's Dan Barker. And Dan Barker is an American atheist activist and musician who once served as an evangelical Christian preacher. And he was also writing Christian music back in the day, but he left Christianity in 1984. Now he and his wife, uh, Annie Laurie Gaylor, are the current presidents of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. He's also the co-founder of the Clergy Project. I really want to dig into both of those topics with him in a minute. He's a writer. He authored a book called Losing Faith in Faith, From Preacher to Atheist. Dan Barker, welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Well, thank you. And I was a teenage fundamentalist. Good to, good to meet both of you. Well, that preempts our first question, which is, were you a teenage fundamentalist? So, Dan, do you want to tell us about your own background growing up? What was teenage fundamentalism like for you? So this was um, a different generation, of course. This was back in the 60s. When I was born again, I was in a, in a fundamentalist family. Bible-believing, literalist, Jesus is coming soon, young earth creationist, all of that. And I loved it. I thought it was the, the, the most special family in the world. Luckily, our family was very loving and, and fun. And, uh, you know, we weren't like these Puritan, angry fundamentalists. We, we had a really, still do have a really a good close-knit family. And I thought, how lucky can one, one guy be? I was born in the right family, in the, in the right religion, in the right country, in the right time of history, because Jesus is coming soon. And I truly, I truly believed it all. And so I, I, you know, I used to believe that God doesn't have any grandchildren and each person has to make their own decision for Christ. And so I did when I was, you know, maybe 14 or so, I, I decided to accept Christ as my savior, have him come into my heart, forgive me of my sins. Um, I don't need to tell you guys about all this because you you went through the same thing. And my family was, um, we were kind of a local Southern California preaching, singing family. I played the piano and mom sang and dad played the trombone and my brothers played different instruments. And we would go around to little churches. And I'm sure we weren't great, but we were sincere. You know, we, we put on these programs and dad, you know, we would preach and and we would go house to house and we would have Bible studies in our home. And unlike a lot of people who couldn't stomach that, I thought it was wonderful. I thought this is this is amazing. You know, I, you know, God is real, and Jesus is in my heart, and and the Bible is the source of of all wisdom and of all guidance in life. 
when I was 15 years old, I was sitting in church and they, they were preaching it. This was a it was Anaheim Christian Center at the time, which later became Melody Land Christian Center, right next to Disneyland. The sermon was about the Great Commission, go into the whole world and preach the gospel. And something clicked in my mind and I felt this presence. I felt this knowingness, this peace that passes understanding. And I knew that I was called to the ministry because why worry about going to college and having a family and all, because Jesus is coming any minute. I mean, it could be tonight. So why would I spend all my time and energy on worldly things when the most important thing in the world is winning souls for Christ and to be able to go to heaven and worship, worship our creator forever. So right there in that service there, I, I accepted what I was convinced was a call to the ministry. And I was also convinced that I didn't have to wait to go to, uh, to seminary or get educated or get ordained that that if you're called you're called and so i started preaching when i was 15. I, I i i was that i was that guy on campus you know the guy with the i was carrying the bible with me and i had this love of this joy and love of christ and i i just knew that when you saw the love in my eyes and you felt the holy spirit i just knew that you would be attracted to this beautiful gift of salvation People probably thought I was nuts, but looking back on it, you know, but at the time I just thought I'm, I can be a fool for Christ. I can do this. And I did it and it worked. A lot of people are, I, I won't say they were suckers. I would say they were, they were ready. They were primed. They were hungry for the gospel, including my uh, high school Spanish teacher, Mr. Edwards. We heard that Mr. Edwards was an agnostic and, and a couple of my other Christian friends, we started praying for Mr. Edwards. And uh, then I took my Bible into classroom. I took my Spanish Bible into class so that he couldn't complain. And I was reading the Bible during during class, and and I was reading in Spanish. So what you know, perfect. And one day he called me. He said, "Dan, can I talk with you after school?" And I said, "Well, okay." He, he he's not only my Spanish teacher; he was the head of the foreign language department for the whole district. I mean, he was a pretty important guy. So after gymnastics practice, I went into his into his classroom and then he shut the door and he said i want to talk to you about something dan and i thought he was going to be critical you know like why are you reading the bible in class and he said i noticed you're bringing your bible and i want to ask you some things what do you believe and so i told him all that stuff i just told you about confessing your sin in jesus and then he started almost crying and i it was this is weird you know because he's he's the great authority he got tears in his eyes and he says you know I've always thought there was something more to life than just the physical world. Maybe there's spirit or what do you think? And I told him. And after we, we met for a, a few weeks and after a while, he became a born again Christian. So and he and I started a club on campus. This was right after the Shemp decision and the prayer and uh, Bible reading in the schools. And so we had we had an illegal Bible club on campus. And so uh, we we were able to preach and and and. I'll cut it short there because there's a long, long story after that involving going down into Mexico with these teams. But I truly, I truly thought that when you're called by God, you speak and, you know, even out of the mouth of babes, that people will get born again. And they were. And my ministry was effective. And, and Dan, I mean, you sound in that story like the perfect Pentecostal preacher not educated in in things like theological colleges anything like that so that's perfect and back in the day that stuff wasn't valued you're right it was all about 
what was the voice of God saying? What, what do I do? What is that booming voice? And it sounds like I can imagine at that time you would have just gone, I just led my teacher to the Lord. This is confirmation that I'm on the right track in life. I'm right where God wants me. Yeah, exactly. I used to say, well, there's all these educated seminary degreed preachers who aren't saying anything very interesting. Why not just preach what the Bible says? I eventually did get a degree in religion. I went to four years at Azusa Pacific, and I eventually did get ordained later. But I count the beginning of my preaching at age 15, because I was preaching. I went down into Mexico, and I preached sermons in, in, in Spanish. I had to learn Spanish to do it. And people would come forward to pray and accept Christ as their Savior. I almost didn't think an ordination was necessary. And, you know, doesn't the Bible say, by their fruits, ye shall know them? And after I became an atheist, a lot of Christians tell me, well, Dan, you were not really a real Christian. You couldn't have been, you couldn't have really, if you really knew Jesus and you really knew God, there's no way you could have turned your back and rejected it. And I often respond, well, well, who are you to judge? Doesn't the Bible say you shall know them by their fruits? And my life exhibited the fruits of the Spirit, and I, people were getting saved. And I started writing Christian music and uh, started performing and started groups. And we were on Christian television in Southern California on a couple of stations. And in fact, I'm still getting royalties today from that, some of that music back then, which is, which is weird. <laughs> what was that, 60 years ago, 50, 60 years ago? What I will say to those people is, if I wasn't a true Christian, then neither are you. Because I felt it, I believed it, I got goosebumps, I had what I was convinced were answers to prayer. I spent time in prayer and in Bible study, and I, I, I spent time preaching, and I lived it. And it wasn't a duty. For me, it wasn't a duty. It was a joy. It was something, it was so exciting to be called to be a soldier on the front line of God's army, to be doing something really meaningful. So... Uh, so that was me. I was that guy um, in in the forward to my book, Godless, where I tell the whole story in greater detail. Richard Dawkins wrote the forward, the, the scientist, and he said, Dan wasn't just a preacher. He was the kind of preacher you would not want to sit next to on a bus. And, and that was me. If, if you sat next to me on a bus, we would, you know what I mean? I knew it. If you sat next to me on a bus, it wasn't random. It wasn't coincidence. It was God directing you to sit next to me on the bus. And isn't, aren't you lucky that God did that? You know, that's how I was thinking this whole time. There was no, no coincidence at all. Yeah, there's no, doubt that, there's no doubt that you were a sincere, believing Christian. As a matter of fact, speaking of Richard Dawkins, I can remember years ago, we're talking nearly 20 years ago, 15 years ago, hearing you telling your wife and Richard Dawkins about how you used to hear the, the voice of God. And it was a radio program, but you could almost see Richard Dawkins' face just looking at you going, right, interesting. And you were saying, oh, look, look, and you, you were almost apologetic. I don't hear it anymore. <laughs> well, you know, we sometimes actually do hear ideas come into our head. Where, like, where did that come from? And so we can, quote unquote, hearing voices. We're not really hearing a voice. It's your own mind. But uh, but yeah, and in fact, I, I sometimes tell Annie Laurie, I say, Annie Laurie, you would not have liked me very much back then because <laughs> she was raised no religion. She thought the whole thing was bunk. Even her father, her father in Southern Illinois, when he was a kid sitting in church, he was maybe 10 years old or 9 or 11 or something. 
he was sitting in church with his family and then he was looking around and he, and, he, and he said, it finally dawned on me, my parents are nuts. They actually believe this stuff. So why is it that some kids, it just never takes with, right? But with me and you, it was like so meaningful and precious. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's a, a psychology thing because I, I admire him and I admire people who that it never took with. I think it's amazing that it took me so long to finally see the light. So how did it all come crashing down for you then? If you were so committed, you were, I mean, you went to Azusa Pacific Bible College. That's pretty Pentecostal, by the way, and we were former Pentecostals ourselves. But how did it all come crashing down? So I wouldn't call Azusa Pacific Pentecostal. There were some Pentecostals there. It was more of a general Bible college, you know, fundamentalist. At the time, it was very evangelical fundamentalist. Uh, I don't think the, the founder um, would, would have called himself Pentecostal, maybe. But in any event, there, there was it was open to even the charismatic movement at the time. So, yeah, and, and the Bible classes were okay. I, I wouldn't call it the high, a high-class you know, Bible college or seminary. But we did the basics, Christian evidences and, and uh, homiletics and hermeneutics in the Book of Romans and Jewish literature, prophetic literature, and all that stuff. Uh, so it was a good education, but it was not, at the time, a high, higher education. You asked me, how did it all come crashing down? And it, it didn't come crashing down. I kind of took it down one brick at a time, little bit, careful, careful. There was no big dramatic moment. There was no, there were some moments I remember, but there was no like big, tragic, dramatic thing. It was a process of about four years, maybe five years when, uh, you know, I've been preaching for, for quite a while. I preached, eventually preached for 19 years total. I was about what, 33 or 34. I had gone through about a four or five year period before that of analyzing within the faith, the way I was raised and the way I believed. And I know it's different for different people, but I couldn't just one day wake up and go, Oh, ha, ha, silly me, there's no God. How could I have been so stupid? I couldn't do that. I couldn't just, you know, and I didn't want to. But most of my, the migration happened within Christianity, starting way off here on the conservative fundamentalist side, reading more and learning more. And then I started to moderate my views a little bit, thinking, oh, I'm growing up. I'm becoming more mature as a Christian. I don't have to hold on to those silly you know, juvenile views that I used to have, I can be more subtle, I can be, you know, I can, and I moved more, and as, as I read more theology, and, and more religious books, and some science, and some philosophy, just out of curiosity, after a year or two, I became more like a moderate Christian, where my sermons were less about the afterlife, and heaven, and hell, and my sermons were more about how do you live this life, like you hear a lot of, from the, from the pulpit on Sunday morning, do you hear sermons, how to let your light shine before men and how to, because obviously Jesus wasn't coming. <laughs> he wasn't returning like, like I thought he was going to any minute. And then eventually as I read more and, and thought more, I, I swung more even toward what you might say a more liberal type of thought where the whole definition of God. Anyway, at the end of that four or five year period, I got to this point where, you know, you're peeling back the layers of the onion uh, you know, like C.S. Lewis tried to do with me or Christianity. What, what is essential? What is the actual core? I kept peeling until finally at the end, I thought, well, what's there? 
what is this God? I, my, I started defining God kind of like, you know, how Paul Tillich called God the ground of all being or something. You know how these liberal theologians redefine God as, or God is love or God is this thing and that was so different from what earlier I had been preaching about God as an actual person, you know, who speaks to you. And uh, I, I remember in the summer of 83, it dawned on me down in a little church down in Mexico, it dawned on me that I was all by myself in that room. And there were no principalities and powers and spirits and some big judging eyeball looking at my life, you know, and my inner thought. I realized for the first time in my life, I was just all alone. It was just me as a natural biological organism in a natural environment looking up at the stars and we're all going to we're all going to shine for a while and then we're going to burn out eventually i guess i wouldn't call that a deconversion moment but it was like a realization moment like ah oh, okay i get it now and then of course a lot of hard work after that it took about a year maybe you have the same experience it took me about a year of the brain having to rebuild itself you know after going through that experience Troy and I, as our listeners would know, had very different experiences. And for Troy, it did come crashing down. For me, it was definitely a gradual thing. Uh, I've referred to it as, you know, theological Jenga. So just pulling one block out at a time and seeing what was left. And in the end, I went, it's actually none of those tenets of Christianity left. So why believe it anymore? What was happening for you, though, with obviously, you know, you're preaching relatively high profile, I'd imagine, within that circle. You're seeing over four or five years, you're becoming more liberal. You're becoming less fire and brimstone and more about the here and now, you know, all those things dropping away. Were people noticing? Were people saying to you, hey, Dan, what's happening? Well, yes, but it didn't quite matter as much. I was an associate pastor in three different churches where I preached and I did music ministry and I did youth ministry. Uh, I was ordained to be a preacher. I accepted what I thought was a call to be an evangelist. So this church in Central California served as my home base. And for eight years, I was traveling around the country with my young family preaching. At the beginning, it was hoping to win one more soul for Jesus before the world ends kind of thing. And so uh, on the side to, to bolster my income, because I didn't make much money at all. And I don't think I was a very high profile preacher. My music was, was getting pretty high profile. I had some of my musical, Christian music was for a while the best selling album for Man of Records for a while. And then I did a follow up for that. And so I had a number of songs published. So that was a bit high profile, but it wasn't like I was some big famous evangelist. So during that four or five years, I was basically not at a local church. I was not up every week in a pulpit. I was every weekend or maybe two or three times a week, I was preaching in various churches around. But I actually was not accountable to any one local church where I had to like, you know what I'm, what I'm saying? After I knew I was an atheist in the summer of 83, uh, I still had a calendar with some preaching engagements on it. I was good at it. I, after all those years, I knew how to preach, how to say it. And, you know, I should have stopped. I should have just, I should have just broken it off. But it's kind of like, if you know your marriage is over, it's ending. 
and you you both realize no this isn't going to work well when do you exactly walk out the door there may be some loose ends to tie up you might you don't just go i I wouldn't think especially if you have kids you got to think it and so my divorce from god was kind of like that too it was like uh it, it took a while and so i i still preached hating myself i still got up there in the pulpit and i was saying these things and the audience was going praise god and some were clapping and people were and i remember after one service it was in southern california i was a hypocrite you know i shouldn't have been up there i shouldn't have been doing that knowing that i didn't believe anymore but the audience didn't know it and the audience was responding you know you would think the holy spirit would have told them this guy's a phony uh this went on for about four years uh, four months till the end of the year and a woman came up to me after one of the services and she said reverend barker i want you to know that i really felt the spirit of god on your ministry tonight and i'm thinking you did and so i know she was feeling something obviously and that kind of showed me i'm sure you guys will agree that the whole thing is a big drama there would be no preachers if there weren't these people in the pulpit playing along, playing along with it. So they're coming to get something and they're going to get it. They're there to worship or to be whatever, to learn. She came to that sermon. She didn't know it was an atheist in the pulpit, and she, and she, but she still felt God's spirit from the things that I said. And, you know, you probably preach, too, that it doesn't matter who says it. The word of God is effective, even if the demons say it. It's the word of God. So. So it shouldn't have And mattered. the other one is the, the gifts of God are without repent, right? So yeah. if you're anointed, you're anointed. Yeah. You know, you can be you can be telling the buttermilk pancake recipe and God's still there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like buttermilk pancakes. So you could sell a lot of those. Uh, in December of that year, like four months later, I was doing I, I tell the story in my book, Godless. I was up in uh, Central California. These two churches had flown me up there, and so I went from San Jose over to uh, Auburn, a little town called Auburn. It was horrible. And then, and then, before the meeting, they told me that uh, they were all excited because an atheist was coming to church, and his name was Harry. And his his young wife, who had just become born again, his young wife convinced him to come to church because it was going to be like a, a kind of Christmas music program because it was December. And he said, okay, I'll go with you. Sure. And everybody said, Harry's a wonderful guy. He, he'll give you the shirt off his back. Everybody loves him. He's a well-respected businessman here in town. And, and, but he's not saved. He's not born again, but his wife got him to come. They must've got on the phone. You know, we're all buzzing. Harry's coming to church. So they told me Harry was going to be out in the audience tonight and, and we're trusting God's going to bless your ministry to bring Harry to Jesus. And boy, did I hate myself. I was up there at the piano preaching, singing these stupid songs that I had written. All the while I'm thinking, there's Harry and atheist. He's out there. I wonder what he thinks. I, I was so embarrassed at what Harry would be thinking about this young evangelist, you know. And I almost stopped right in the middle of a song. I almost stopped and said, this is crap. I'm sorry. This is, <laughs> but I couldn't. I, you know, they hadn't. What would I do? You know, would I just walk out into the night, or would I? Uh, and they hadn't given me my plane ticket home yet. You know, I mean, it was like I was kind of like. And so I remember in my brain thinking, "All right, I'm a showman. I can do this. I'm good at it. I'll go ahead and do it like it's a, a show. You don't have to believe it to be in a show, right? You just do it like Pagliacci in the in the opera Pagliacci. The clown's heart was broken." 
just before going on stage when he had to make people laugh. And he, he did it, you know. So that's how I was feeling, like the show must go on. And so I finished it. But that was the last time. I never I never preached again. And, and a couple of weeks later, I sent a letter out in early January. I sent a letter out to um, everyone I could think of, friends, relatives, co-preachers, co-missionaries, uh, Christian publishers. I had one page letter that I reproduce in the book. Just a simple letter explaining that I don't believe anymore. And, well, I got all sorts of reactions from that. So basically, you maintained your integrity, at least at the point where you published this letter. And that brings us, we will come back to Freedom From Religion Foundation, but this one flows right into the idea of the clergy project of which you are a co-founder. I'd really like you to talk to us about the mission of the clergy project and why it is you do this? It, it was almost providential, if you think about it. Uh, three different strands, three different things were kind of happening at once, and they came together. So I had known a lot of, in my work with the Freedom from Religion Foundation, I had met and known a lot of other former clergy, uh, like myself. In fact, in 1985, we had, uh, I think, the very first panel of former ministers who are now atheists in in, in uh, Minneapolis. So I knew some of them. And then after my books were published, I started getting letters and phone calls from former clergy, but occasionally from clergy who were still in the pulpit. And sometimes they would call and whisper, I can't have my wife hear me talking to you. Or uh, one guy called after church service and he said, I'm not going to tell you my real name, but I read your book and I'm a, I'm a pastor of an East Tennessee church. And and I think I, I think I'm losing. So I kind of kept a loose contact with a lot of these people. And then uh, the philosopher Daniel Dennett and his colleague Linda Lascola wanted to do a project about preachers who don't believe anymore. Uh, a serious project out of Tufts University with a qualitative researcher, with a serious research project to, to study what, what happens to preachers who don't believe anymore. Well, the problem was, how do they find them? How, you can't just go walk up on a church and say, hey, are you an atheist? How do you find these people, especially if they're still in the pulpit? So Linda called me and said, do you know any names? And I said, yeah, I do. I know some people. I, I hear from them. So I gave her about, I don't know, seven or nine different names of people. And she promised confidentiality. She actually flew to meet with some of them. She actually flew to meet with that East Tennessee pastor while he was still a pastor, but he had, they had to go out of town and he had to like disguise himself. You know, it was a really a neat story. In fact, there was a Broadway play made out of that story that aired last year, which was pretty neat. It was called The Unbelieving. Richard Dawkins also, we were in, in Copenhagen and over dinner one night, Richard Dawkins just volunteered. He says, you know what? I know there's some, I know there's preachers in the Church of England and other churches that they don't, they're actually atheists and they don't believe, but it must be tough for them because what other job are they going to get? It must be hard. They've put all their time and energy and, and who's going to hire somebody with a divinity degree, you know? And he says, maybe we should help them. Maybe we could start something. And it wasn't called the clergy project then. So the president of his Richard Dawkins foundation and Linda Lascola and I met in DC in 2011, we talked it over and said, yeah, let's start a group. And Richard Dawkins put up the money so that we could have this, create a forum, an online forum. Linda Lascola then with her book and, and her research and Daniel Dennett with his research, 
they put us in contact. We in, in some of my contacts, we started with 52, I think with 52 or maybe 56 names, mostly former clergy, people like me who had already been out, but a few of them, roughly about a fourth of them, who were still in the pulpit wanting to get out. So we started uh, in March of 2011. The, we called it the Clergy Project then. It was later incorporated. The Freedom from Religion Foundation handled it for a while, but it really wasn't our thing. And so it incorporated on its own. And now today, there's close to 1,300 people who have come into it, 1,300 former clergy. These are preachers, pastors, missionaries, priests, monks, uh, some nuns, uh, rabbis, uh, at least one imam. I think there's two or three imams, uh, Muslim imams in the group. There's a, It's a private online forum that uh, is one of these groups that you don't have to join unless you were a professional ordained or equivalent actual minister, preacher, clergy. Then that we have a screening process where we want to make sure that you're the real thing. First of all, that you really have abandoned the supernatural, but mainly that you really were a, a legitimate clergy member. Uh, and this this includes like youth pastors and, and worship leaders, uh, as long as they were, were professionals at it. So, and it's pretty neat. And the online forum is broken up into different groups, liberal groups, uh, Southern Baptists, uh, Jehovah's Witness, uh, uh, elders, you know, and, and so they all want to kind of talk with their own people. And a lot of them say it's just really refreshing just to just to know others that have gone through it and to compare notes and what books did you read? And how did you tell your family? What happened with your marriage? And some, some of them need marriage counseling. And some of them need actual, like, some of them have depression problems. And, and some of them need real serious counseling. And so we are able to provide them, refer secular counselors to, to these people because they don't want to go to a religious counselor. And uh, we also have a job training, um, job transition program because some of them need help finding a new career. How, you know, what are you gonna do? Dozens of interesting stories about how, how they ended up landing on their feet. So it, that's just a short version of what the Clergy Project is all about. You can find it easy online. It's clergyproject.org where you can find the, the public facing page, but you won't be able to get into the actual uh, inside forum unless you go through the screening process. Dan, I say this a little bit, tongue-in-cheek but also genuinely mean it I mean it's almost like a ministry that you've got you know helping people to safely get out and safely identify with people who believe the same thing essentially non-belief is that there's a bit of irony there isn't there in in what you do but it's such an incredibly powerful thing and we find the same with the podcast when we started it we had no idea I had no idea what would happen with it, but we created a community of people going, I'm not alone. Oh my God, I thought I was the only one, or I thought I just had one friend, and now I've got thousands of friends who I can bounce things off. How do you find that that translates with people that essentially become involved in the clergy project? Well, this is a real special group because all of these people were and are leaders, you know what I mean? They were spiritual counseling leaders. I mean, you know, you know, most clergy are at a sort of, I don't think it should be this way, but the clergy are kind of viewed as a kind of higher class of people. And if you're in the ministry, you think if you're ordained and called by God, you actually are, especially like if you're a 
bishop or a cardinal or something or a pope. I mean, you're really somebody special. And I have to say, I hated that. When I was in the ministry, I hated that. I didn't want to be called reverend. Uh, I, I was not the ego. I was not the big moneymaker. I, I really cared about winning souls. But uh, in the clergy project, we have a whole cross-section of personalities. And it's so much fun. The kind of jokes we can tell among ourselves, you know, former clergy to other clergy, and the kind of dialogue. And, uh, and we all know when we're hanging out that we have nothing to prove. You know what I mean? That we, we all understand uh, pretty much what we all went through. And, and different traditions have different struggles. Mormons really have a deep hole to climb out of, you know, and, and I think some Catholic priests too, uh, you know, this whole concept of being able to, to take pleasure in pleasure. A lot of, a lot of religious traditions downplay pleasure and they, people feel guilty for that. Many of them are writers. And in fact, on the clergy project forward public facing page, you can see a lot of their books that they've written and you can read more of their stories. And it's not just my book and my story, but there's dozens of others about their story and about their life and about advice. And these are people who have gone through it and they do know what they're talking about. Dan, can you tell us now, I did promise we were going to come back because I, I want to hear all about the Freedom From Religion Foundation, or I want our audience to hear all about the Freedom From Religion Foundation because it had a massive impact on me when I was deconstructing and deconverting your website, your radio program. Like I said, I was, you know, listening to you interview people like Richard Dawkins. I can remember living in China and waiting for the weekend so that I could get the release of your radio program because it was about not feeling alone. And back then we're talking, you know, sort of 2009, 2010, it wasn't so much, it was heading this way, but it wasn't so much like it is now where you had multiple podcasts, where you had Instagram accounts and Facebook groups. It just wasn't there like it is now. And so you have been in this space for a really long time and you were doing this when not a lot of other people were doing this. So we'd really like to hear the story of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, how you got there, but then also what you're doing now. So it started in the 70s. Sometimes people call me one of the founders, and I wasn't. I joined in 84, so that's pretty close to the beginning. It started because of women's issues. Anne Gaylor and Annie Laurie Gaylor, her daughter, Annie Laurie was in college in Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin, were working for women's rights, primarily feminism and birth control and abortion rights. And the mother, Anne, wrote the first editorial in the state of Wisconsin in favor of abortion rights. And she learned that a lot of religious people also were too, even a lot of Catholics. And so she, there were a lot of allies. But what she noticed uh, was that the primary enemy was the church. In fact, they went to a city council meeting to testify on some bill. I don't remember exactly what the bill was, but before it started, the actual public meeting began with a priest coming up and doing a prayer at a public meeting. And so Anne put down her notes and she complained, what, you people are the problem that we're fighting. You, you're the religion and here you are cozying up with the government. There should not be any prayers at this meeting. And some attorney, uh, some journalist was there at the meeting afterwards. And she said, well, who are you? What group are you with? And there was no group, but and thought, well, we can have a group that's of people who are free from religion. And he said, that's the name of your group? And she said, 
yeah, yeah, freedom from religion. So they they got some index cards and they they that that story ran in the paper. Journalists wrote that story, and people started calling her. How can I join the freedom from religion? So Anne and Annie Laurie started on their dining room table, and it grew and grew. And in 1978, it became a national organization. They became incorporated with maybe a thousand members at the time, which seemed like a big deal. Today, we're over 41,000 members in the country, and we think it should be a lot more. I joined in '84, and then in '87, I was hired full time. It was healthy enough to now start actually paying staff because they did it all volunteer for so many years. We have a monthly newspaper called Free Thought Today. We sue the government. In 2009, we hired our first attorney. Today, we have 10 full-time attorneys on staff. And plus, right now in the summer, there's five or six interns. So we have a real busy, and there's legal staff as well, writing letters of complaint, filing lawsuits, writing amicus briefs. Most of the victories we get are outside of court. We just send a letter to some school or some governor or some mayor reminding them of what the law says. And sometimes, not often enough, but sometimes they say thank you and they stop the practice. We're mostly known for our legal work, which is our main purpose to keep religion and government separate. We're also known for our educational outreach and efforts, which is the show that you heard. In um, 2006, we started a radio show broadcast. And at the time there were podcasts, but we were not thinking about a podcast. We we're thinking broadcast on the air and air America came along. And I think we were on 50 or 60 stations around the country with our free thought radio show. We got to interview Christopher Hitchens and Gore Vidal. And as you said, uh, Dawkins a number of time and Dennett and just, just amazing actors, politicians and authors reformers, well, you name it. If you listen to the show, there's all sorts of people we get to talk to. Air America went defunct, but we stayed on a number of those stations, and we still are on a number of those stations. Basically, Free Thought Radio is a broadcast. It's being broadcast into the airwaves, which means you're not just preaching to the choir. You're not just, like with a podcast, people sign up because they like you. But with a, with a broadcast, you don't know who out there. We've got a phone call from a truck driver who was driving through town one day, one Saturday, and he heard our show on the radio. Hey, this is cool. So he pulled over and he went to the li- a bookstore and bought some of our books and joined. So after it's a broadcast, then we turn it into a podcast, which is what you were able to hear anywhere in the world. And there's many thousands who listen to it. And what are we at? Our 18th year now, I think, since 2006, uh, going strong. Hi, I'm Tracy. And I'm Sharon. And we are Feet of Clay, Confessions of the Cult Sisters. Huh, we've got less than 60 seconds. Sharon, go. Truthfully, Troy and Brian, you're the ones who deserve the credit or the blame for all of this. First, they got you, Tracy, to claim that Christian music megastar Keith Green was a cult leader. (laughs) Then they got you, Sharon, to talk about your pure virgin marriage personally arranged by Keith Green. (laughs) And now we are totally out of the closet, launching our own podcast, telling the world about the crazy Christian commune, Last Days Ministries. And most importantly, our decades-long escape from the trauma and abuse of extreme Christianity. 
So join us as we share our journey of healing and humor and how we found love and peace and joy on the other side. Wherever you get your podcasts, Feet of Clay, Confessions of the Cult Sisters. Hey guys, we'd love to hear from our audience. So if you'd like to connect with I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, then visit our website, IWasAteenageFundamentalist.com or find our link tree URL in the show notes. We also have a thriving community of listeners on Facebook who offer peer support and a shitload of funny memes and things of interest to former teenage fundies just like you. You can find us on Facebook or see the links in our show notes. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Before we do go on, we're interested to hear, I mean, you've arrived at a place where you haven't gone, uh, maybe it's not true, yeah, maybe, uh, I'm not quite sure. You've, you've chosen atheism. Like you've, you've really, that, that is the place that you are coming from with all of the, the work that you're involved in. Atheism for you, what's it look like? What's the expression of it? And essentially why atheism and not agnosticism? Why not be, you know, a little bit less definite? So you're right. Today, I would say that I do choose to embrace atheism and agnosticism. I think you, you can be both. And I think many people are both because they're addressing two completely different things. I would not say that I chose atheism in the beginning. It was just sort of the default. It was kind of like the onion peeled back. And it wasn't like, oh, there's atheism. It wasn't a thing. Atheism is not a thing. Atheism is not really a philosophy or a moral philosophy. There are atheist philosophers and atheist moral philosophers. Atheism itself is not making any claim. Atheism is basically just the absence of theism. So theism is a belief in a personal God, as opposed to something like deism, which is a belief in like an impersonal God or a force or whatever you are. Some people pronounce it deism. Theism is not knowledge. Theism is a belief. People believe in God, right? So an atheist is not a person who says, I know there's no God. An atheist, a basic atheist, is a person who simply lacks the belief in a God. So by whatever definition of a God you might think of, if you don't hold a belief in that, then you are atheistic, at least with the lowercase a. You may not want to call yourself an atheist with a big capital A on your shirt. But just like I could describe you as a male which is a description, you wouldn't necessarily want to put a big M on your said, I'm a male. It's just part of what you mean, right? So I think atheism in its most general sense is just a person who does not have, who lacks a belief in a God. But within that group of atheists, there is a, a subset of what you might call capital A atheists or hard atheists who take it a step further from just basically non-believing atheism. They might be, be more likely called anti-theists or, or capital A atheists who say, not only do I not believe, I know there's no God. Those, and, and in the general public, that's kind of what people think atheism is, is a person who knows there's no God. And I would say, if you define a God a certain way, I can say, yeah, I know that God doesn't exist. Uh, or I have such a high level of probability that I'm, I'm going to round it off. I mean, it's just like nobody can prove there's no leprechauns, but I'm so certain that I'm going to round it off and I'm going to say there's no leprechauns, right? I might be wrong, but come on, after all these years, 
Same thing with God. After all these years of thinking and analyzing, and for me, basically, it's like five or six absences. The first is an absence of uh, even a, of a coherent definition of a God. What is this thing? What is a spirit? What I mean, if you're going to believe something, you at least need to have clearly define what it is you believe. That hasn't been done. It's a vague, amorphous concept, the creator, the intelligent designer. Until somebody co coherently defines it, I, I, lack, I lack a belief in something that, that, that lacks a definition. There's also the absence of evidence for a God. I do think that the absence of evidence is evidence of absence. The absence of evidence is not proof of absence. But the absence of evidence is evidence of absence, especially if you look. If I'm doing a debate and the authorities come in and say, there's been a bomb threat, you need to get out of the building, leave. And so we all go outside the building and we wait. After an hour or so, the authorities come out and say, okay, the building's clear. You can come back in. Would you go back in? Do you have proof that there's no bomb? There's no bomb, but how do you have proof? Well, then the authorities would show you, well, we, we went on this checklist, every room, every closet, every trash can, every desk drawer. We went and we checked everything off and we didn't find a bomb. I think that checklist is evidence of absence. I think it's, it's not proof of absence, but it's a strong enough evidence. And so I think if you look around the world and you see there's no good evidence for a God, there's evidence, obviously. I mean, there's evidence for leprechauns. So if, if you've ever eaten a box of Lucky Charms, there's a picture of a leprechaun right in the box, right? So there's songs about leprechauns. There's stories about leprechauns. So there's evidence for leprechauns. And you could even say there's evidence for God because look at all the stories. But is it good evidence? Is it, can it be testable and verified? Is it falsifiable even and all that? Another absence is the, the absence of a good argument for a God. And I've done a lot of debates and there's about a dozen different kind of arguments that people bring forth. Apologists will bring forth uh, design, teleological arguments. Uh, there's ontologicals. There's uh, cosmological arguments, first cause. Uh, there's moral argument uh, and, and so on. There's other types of arguments. And those are all just bad arguments. If you look at them, Bertrand Russell once said, he was, he, as a teenager, he was briefly convinced by the ontological argument. As a, and he, and, but the next morning he woke up and he realized it's just bad grammar is all it is. And so there's an absence of, you know, absence of evidence, absence of definition, an absence of uh, good argument. Um, there's an absence of a good explanation for the problem of evil, if you believe in a good God. There's uh, an absence of agreement among believers about the nature or the moral principles of this God. You would think there's, if there's a God, there would be one religion, right? If there is a God. But the absence of, a, of agreement is what I would call an, an, one of these evidences against God's existence. And then finally, there's an absence of, um, of a need for a God. Mill hundreds of millions of good people on the planet live good life, happy life, moral, productive, joyful, loving lives without this God thing that a lot of people think they need, but there really is no need for it. And so when you put all those together, I think this absence of evidence really is a strong evidence for the absence of, of a intelligent designer or a creator or a God. Now, Dan, we do want to pick up on something you said a minute or two ago that you have 
entered into to many debates. And there's one debate that we want to talk to you about, which is in Australia, we had uh, Cardinal George Pell, who was a controversial figure. He was the head of the Catholic Church in Australia. He was accused of pedophilia. And ultimately, he had those charges overturned once he was imprisoned and he got let out. And then he fled to the Vatican, or it might have been the way, the other way around. He got extradited back from the Vatican. But either way, he was let off. There was a lot of anger around this guy. There was a lot of controversy. But you debated him. Can you tell us how that came about, firstly? But what did that debate look like? And what was the outcome? And what was the, the ripple effect from that, if any? Yes, he was convicted and he went to jail. And the conviction was overturned, not on the merits of the case, but it was overturned because of, of a procedural the judge didn't properly inform the jury or there's something like that. It was overturned on technical grounds, not that he was exonerated from having done the crime. But at the time that I debated him, that was just 2010, these rumors were out there, but it was not the kind of thing I could bring up during our debate because it was not germane to the g debate topic. Unless he had said something about morality, you know what I mean? I could have maybe dropped it in, but I couldn't. It would have been like ad hominem if I had brought that up. But a lot of people in the audience knew about these charges. In fact, Richard Dawkins later debated George Pell himself at some theater somewhere in Sydney. <laughs> and during the debate with Dawkins, George Pell was saying something like, uh, well, one day while I was preparing the altar boys and the whole crowd broke into laughter <laughs> when he's made that line. But anyway, so I went to uh, Australia for part of the atheism conference in Melbourne there right there on the Yarrow River, there's that big Melbourne center there. The, the exhibition center, we, we call it affectionately Jeff Shedd, who was a, an ex-premier and he built this enormous convention center and his name was Jeff Kennett. So just a little bit of trivia for our, for our listeners, Jeff Shedd. It was a nice venue and I don't think there's ever been a larger group of atheists in history in one building. I think there were like 40,000 from around the world in that building. And it was pretty amazing to get up in front of that, you know, that group. But anyway, uh, the students, uh, some of the student groups in Australia knew that some of the speakers were coming. And so uh, some of the students uh, out of Macquarie University in Sydney, uh, they said, we'll set you up a tour, Dan. So they set me up a tour to visit a number of campuses around the country and do a couple of debates. That happened even before the Macquarie conference. That my very first day in Australia, the, that actual next morning, was the debate with Pell. And so the atheist group at Macquarie and the Roman Catholic Student Club at Macquarie, they got together and they organized the debate. They were shocked that Pell would agree. The Catholic students were like, wow, this is a big deal. And this, the uh, atheists were surprised to have like a, a prominent atheist come in. So it made a big deal. It was broadcast live on ABC radio. Uh, and I think that's still online somewhere. You can still watch it. I was a bit jet lagged, but it was interesting. And George Pell picked the topic. And it, it wasn't a proper debate topic, but he picked it anyway. The topic was, without God, we are nothing. So that's how do you debate? You know, you should have you should have a proposition kind of thing. Anyway, I agreed to do it. Before the debate started, we agreed afterwards that the organizers the student organizers and, and George Pell and I would get a photo taken, you know, just for, for the history of it. 
And before the debate, I I've spoke to George and I said, you know, how do we address each other here? You can call me Dan if you want. And can I just call you George? And he said, okay. So during the debate, I just called him George. And all these people were there with their vestments on and these nuns and I was packed with, you know, kind of half and half atheists and Catholics. And they were all calling him uh, your eminence and your, you know, father. They were all like really impressed that here is this. Uh, he was an archbishop at the time. And he wasn't cardinal yet because he had been in Melbourne for a while. And then he went back up to Sydney. And the charges were about when he was a seminary in seminary many years before that. We did the debate and I could tell the audience was uncomfortable with me just calling him George because we're just two guys. We're just talking, right? He, he was cordial, but he wasn't very friendly. I mean, he was saying, you atheists are like dogs at a concert. You're sitting at the concert, you're hearing the concert, but you're not hearing the music. You atheists are living in this world, but you're not really hearing the true, you know what I mean? He's making these kind of comments. Something about being a father, he said. And then and I turned to him and I said, well, actually, George, I, I am a father. <laughs> And somebody in the audience yelled out, he's the father to all of us. And so anyway, we did this debate and he did not like what I said about Mother Teresa because in their mind, Mother Teresa was just this golden girl. But we finished the debate and then handshaking and then let's get the photograph that we agreed to. And George says, nope, I'm not getting having my picture taken with that man. And he walked out. So we have a photograph of me and the atheist student and then this lone Catholic student guy standing there like he was supposed to be standing with his guy, but we this is three of us. So later he was convicted after that. This was after the debate. He didn't want photo taken. Did the debate not go well for him? Was that a reason or he was just being an ass? I think he wouldn't say that it went badly. He would not say that. But that he, I think he found me to be so offensive because I was, I was asserting feminism and women's rights and abortion rights and saying things about Mother Teresa that he found offensive. And it must have got under his skin. I don't know if anybody judged who won that debate, because how do you judge those things anyway? Sometimes they are judged, actually. The debate I did at Oxford in England was actually judged by people judging with their feet. That was fun. What kind of a person would revel in all this adulation from the flock. I mean, what kind of person is like that who thinks it's so important to be this bishop cardinal? I had trouble with that even when I was a minister. I didn't like this idea that there's a caste system, you know. And, but Pell apparently really, really loved that and the way they dress and the way people talk to them. And uh, it's all just so phony, this, this whole, not just Catholicism, but this, just this whole structure of clergy in in the world. Yeah, well, you wouldn't be the first person to point out narcissists in a church structure at all. Hey, Dan, another question I want to ask you, because you have been in the atheist space, or let's let's even say in the non-religious space, you have walked away from Christianity 40-something years ago. Do you still deal with anything from your religious past on a personal level, even all these decades later? Yeah. Well, my Christian wife, we, we divorced. And when you have children, you always have a relationship. So one or two of our, we had four kids, one or two of them might be religious and, and two of them at least are pretty non-believing atheist agnostic. And so, uh, so we have friends from back then. And one of my best friends from the sixties is still a good friend today, Glenn. And, uh, I visit with him when I go out to California 
and we talk on the phone maybe every month or two and we have all these shared memories of our evangelistic tours and our missionary tours and all the friends and people we knew and the tv shows and all of the stuff and so he's a strong believer and and we know we like each other you know what i mean after i sent my letter out i, I found out who were my friends and who weren't because a true friendship is horizontal it's not contingent a lot of those people that i thought were friends they're gone and they couldn't stand the fact that i changed but some of them we are still friends today because we realize that we it's no contingency. We actually like each other as people. And so, and one of my brothers, Tom, is still a born again. He's an evangelical Christian. And he he's a great guy. We we talk a lot and we visit a lot. And we, I think we, our family is loving enough that we know to avoid the contentious issues. And so we talk about our family and our relatives and our past and all of that. You know, we were both in gymnastics together and had all these stories. We were both musicians and uh, I know he's uh, uh, evangelical. However, he's one of the few evangelicals who did not vote for Trump because not all of them did. I think 80% or 82% in the United States voted for Trump, but some of them did not. They, some of them think character matters. And my brother was one of those people. Our other brother, there's three of us, Daryl became a humanist atheist really early, back in the 80s. As soon as he saw his big brother come out as an atheist, he, he said, yeah, I've been thinking those things too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was like, for him, it was like almost overnight for Daryl. Uh, although I have to say that he never was a really very good Christian anyway at the time, but he likes me saying that because he would agree with that. So, so yeah, we still have to deal. And then at FFRF, we deal with Christians and Jews, not all the time, but often enough. Uh, in fact, just uh, this week, our episode of Free Thought Radio is a Catholic journalist who is a believing Catholic who wrote a great book about the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. It's called Playing God. And she's very progressive, very liberal, and like she's more like Pope Francis than like the American bishops are. And two weeks ago, we also had an evangelical, uh, we had a Christian on who's now an ex-evangelical, but he's still a Christian. And he wrote a good book about Christian nationalism. And the Freedom from Religion Foundation produced last year a a joint report with the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, Amanda Tyler, who also heads up a group called Christians Against Christian Nationalism. And she's a strong believer and a, a happy, good woman. And she was happy to come on our show. Uh, and then Ryan Burge, who's this pastor. Ryan is a pastor who's a well-respected sociologist, uh, statistician, and um, who does all these surveys about religion in the country. We've had him on, he, he came on our Ask an Atheist show. And I, it, it's kind of cool because sometimes we're fighting the same fights with people who have different beliefs. So very few atheists are so hard-nosed that they, they refuse to associate with believers. So Dan, you know, it has been a long time. It's been 40 plus years. What would you say to those people that go, hey, Dan, seriously, just move on. Like here you were, you were, a, you were a hardcore Christian and now the flip side of it, you're being hardcore from another perspective. Why Why have you stuck at the game so long? More than half of your life has been dedicated to this, I guess, assisting people on the other side of, of, of belief. Yeah, well, I take it, I take it as a compliment. You, if you believe in something, you're committed to it and you can live your life and you can have a successful life at it. I was on a radio show a few years ago and 
the host, this woman, she asked me the same question. Why are you so, why can't you just be an atheist, but why do you have to talk about it? And, and I said, well, first of all, you invited me on this show, <laughs> which, which is actually what happened on the Oprah Winfrey show the day that Annie Laurie and I met. Somebody asked, you know, well, how come you're going on TV to talk about your atheism? Why did you just keep it to yourself? And Annie Laurie said, well, you invited us, right? You're, you're, we're not like barging in here. But I asked this radio host woman, if you have a preacher on or a minister on your show, do you ask them the same question? Why are you speaking up about this? Why don't you just keep it to yourself? Why is it okay for them to speak about their belief in these supernatural things, but it's not okay for us to, to dissent, to, to criticize it? Of course it's okay, and it's a, it's a free world. And you know, about half of our work is promoting non-belief, but the other half is state church separation. And that's very meaningful. If you can correct a state church violation on things that are not necessarily atheistic things, it's just mixing religion and government. We often have religious people join us in our lawsuits. We had a local pastor join us on one of our lawsuits who disagrees with atheism, but uh, he, he spoke out and said, this is wrong and I'm going to join these people. Speaking out and working for state church separation is, is is important you know what's more important than working for these ideals of at least in our country the ideals of the the founders who created the first country in the world with separation of church and state you mentioned trump before thinking about what you have watched over these decades this conflict between church and state this rise of christian nationalism the growth of the mega churches and their influences things better or are things worse from your perspective, both from a U.S. perspective, but also from a global perspective? So the answer is both. It's like a train wreck in slow motion that's happening right now. The, the country, our country, is becoming much less religious. And it's pretty amazing. The sociologists are, are pretty impressed with the fact that the fastest growing religious demographic in our country right now is non-religion. Back in 92, about 7% of America's checked the box, no religion. In 2011, that was up to about 14%. And today, it's almost 30%, that growth of people checking no religion. That doesn't mean they're all atheists. They're just saying, I don't identify with a religion. Some of those people who check no religion believe in God and they pray. The actual atheist and agnostic secular humanist is somewhere between like seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven percent, somewhere in that range, depending on how you how you count it, which is still pretty significant. If it's ten percent of our country who are non-believers, well, look at Judaism. Judaism is a respected minority in the United States at less than two percent. They're at the table, and yet non-believers tend not to even be at the table until recently. Now we're seeing a growth of, uh, well, this, the Congressional Free Thought Caucus in the U.S. House of Representatives now has about 15 members working for state church separation. That's new. Some of them are non-believers. There's a new group called the Association of Secular Elected Officials, ASEO, uh, at the state and local levels all over the country. This would be governors or, or legislators or mayors or school board presidents at different levels. There's a whole bunch more secular people coming out. So our country is becoming much less religious, but the courts are becoming much more religious. And part of that is thanks to Trump packing the court with three, three nom nominees, raised Catholic, committed 
to ultra conservative ideologies. And so the current Supreme Court were is the final arbiter, which, by the way, its approval rating is really, really low right now for various other reasons as well. They are in a position of imposing Christian nationalist opinions, and they sometimes do, and they have been doing that in the last few years, not representing what's happening in the country. They don't. In fact, their nominations were not only were not even representative because the Senate who represented, they were not representing the majority of the voters, the way the system worked the thing out. We have justices on the Supreme Court representing the minority of our country who are making decisions for the majority. So, and they even admit it. In the last 10, 20, 30 years or more, the religious right has admitted that they are losing the culture war. They're losing and losing. And all the battles they fought in the culture, they're losing. Uh, it used to be um, creationism in the schools, prayer in the schools, you know, way, way back, women's right to vote. And you name it, a, a gay marriage, uh, abortion. Well, now abortion is going back. We're in, in, in many states, we're having a huge fight with abortion. I think it's kind of like they know they're dying. They know they're losing in the hearts and minds of people. They know they're losing the culture war. So they're trying to use force. They're trying to, these multi-billionaire people who are funding money into like the Federalist Society and other groups that are trying to get these ultra conservative people nominated and they've been very successful at that i think it's kind of like these it's kind of like a wounded animal who knows it's dying and it's thrashing around and it wants to take everything down it can with it while it's going down so it's a very dangerous time right now there this minority of believers and christianity is shrinking but they're becoming more dangerous because they hate to give up they hate to surrender the privilege they used to have as white Christians in this country. They know they're losing that and they hate it. They're doing everything they can to try to preserve it, to take our country back. Dan, I'm just wondering, like you've, you're very passionate about this and there's great, great you know, responses to our questions. Some of them we're asking, obviously, because there'll be questions that our, our listeners are thinking as they listen to you. So many people in our listenership and in our groups 20 30 odd years on they still wrestle with those little niggling bits at the back of their mind going what if i'm wrong what if just what if 40 years out is there anything that niggles at the back of your mind about abandoning your faith and about life in general or have you got a real certainty well Philosophically, no. That first year, I have to admit, was quite an adjustment. And, you know, am I sure about this? Am I right about this? Julia Sweeney, the actress in her play Letting Go of God, she, she, she's a comedian. She's really funny. Let me just try on the no God glasses for one day and look around and take them right back off again. Let me try it for another day. See what happens. Oh, the no God glasses. Uh, you should see her play, by the way. It's really hilarious. And if you hear a little bit of piano music, that's me playing the piano up in the up in the high registers up there. So for that first year, yeah, it was tough. And I think it's because our brains wire themselves certain ways. We get habits, right? I remember even a few months after I knew I was an atheist, I was reading some of the works of Robert Ingersoll, the great agnostic. And I was going, wow, this is great stuff. Wow, God bless you, Robert Ingersoll. You know what I mean? Habits in your brain 
I didn't mean God bless you, but I said it because it was a habit. And some people compare it to um, like a big traumatic event in your life, like a death in the family or a divorce or something. It takes your brain a while to rewire, actually. You know, the, the brain cells can actually migrate and the, the plasticity of the brain it takes a while for that to happen. It's not you're not just going to wake up one day and go, oh, ha ha. So, yeah, for that first year or so. But that's long, 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 long gone. And I, I would have said, if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, the gospel music, I missed that. So I've written some songs in a gospel music style, which, because I play, I play piano. But now we have a project that FFRF is funding called Godless Gospel. And for me as a musician, it's one of the funnest things in the world and very fulfilling. We have found, uh, through the help of, with Mandisa Thomas of Black Nonbelievers and through others, some former gospel musicians, as in black gospel musicians, you know, the traditional hand clapping in the, the modern black, black gospel. Some people who are now fed up with it and have left it. And one of them is a, a songwriter producer named Andre Forbes. And he and I spent a year and a half or two years writing godless gospel. We've, we've written totally new songs, but using that style. So it's not a parody. We're not taking old gospel melody. We're, just, we're writing actually new material. He has found some musicians. And last year, we did the debut of Godless Gospel at our convention in San Antonio. And it was like seven or eight singers, a full band with songs saying, I don't need Jesus to give me a smile, you know, or the natural world is good enough for me, or uh, you don't need to be ashamed, a song that Andre wrote because he struggled for a long time. He was a highly respected gospel musician, and he struggled and he had to make a living, too, when he left the faith. Now, as an atheist, he still has this talent. But he, he was so fed up with the hypocrisy and how people are judging other people in religion. And are you an in-group or an out-group? Are you saved? Are you damned? You know. And so he wrote a song called, You Don't Need to Be Ashamed of Who You Are, Whoever You Are. So you can hear that, by the way. Go to YouTube and just type in Godless Gospel Debut. And you'll hear the debut performance which is really good, but uh, the sound needs to be adjusted. The sound mix was wrong. And so we're, gonna, we're actually going to make an album. We're going into the studio next month to do the tracking, and then we're going to bring the singers in. And we are auditioning for more singers who can sing. Uh, you don't have to be black as long as you, if you can sing the style, we're auditioning. And, you know, most of them are black gospel singers. Uh, so if you know anybody in the U.S. or that can sing that style and who wants to be a part of it, we're, we will audition you as well. Dan, I love what you're doing and how that rattles against the angry atheist stereotype that this is also positive. It's also uplifting. It's a reclaiming of the things that matter and not rejecting everything that wasn't of, or that is of value from, from the past. Dan, how do people connect with you and your work? We'll definitely put all the everything in our show notes for sure. But do you want to tell people how they connect with Freedom from Religion, Clergy Project, Dan Barker? Well, of course, with the internet, it's very easy. Either look for Freedom from Religion Foundation or the website directly is ffrf.org. And the Clergy Project is simply clergyproject.org, which also has a Facebook page too, where some of the, while the Clergy Project is a private forum that you're invited to. Uh, there is a Facebook page where some of the clergy project interact with members of the public if they want to. 
So you can go onto the Facebook clergy project and, uh, you know, maybe talk with some of the clergy active or former clergy that are in the group. Dan, it really has been an awesome chat. I've, I've really enjoyed it. I know Troy has, I mean, you, as we said at the start, you meant so much to Troy in his deconversion and deconstruction all those years ago. And I know that today's chat will be really helpful to people and, and hearing from someone who is doing good, someone who is actually seeking to make a difference and connect people and not trying to be destructive or angry. I, I just love it because it's flying a flag for another way that people can live their life on the other side of, of religion, on the other side of, of belief in, in a God. And not to mention, Brian, I am so grateful for the work of Freedom From Religion Foundation and also for Dan and Annie Laurie with what they did through their radio program. It was just so impacting and so supportive. And had I not had that, it would have been so much harder. So I really am so grateful to you, Dan, for what you've done over the, you know, the last however many decades, but you've had impact on me. And I would dare say what we're doing today is partly inspired by what I saw you doing, that we could be active, that we could be positive, that we could do something that's going to make a difference for people's lives. So as much as that may sound like an overgush, I am genuinely grateful to you. So thank you so much for what you've done and what you continue to do. Well, that means a lot. You know, when you dedicate your life to something, you like to hear that you are making a difference in some way. So, so appreciate that. Anything to help people navigate what can be quite a bumpy journey for some, I think is is so incredibly important. So don't understate, we certainly don't understate the, the value of your work and the value of the things that you're involved in, of giving a voice to people and giving a place to people where they can belong. So again, Dan, thank you so much for what you do. Thank you so much for today's chat. It, it really has been wonderful and people will get so much out of it because I know that we certainly have. Maybe we can come down in person someday and meet you guys. Come and see us, Dan. We would love to catch up. How nice. If you'd like to connect with the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast, then please see the links in our link tree in the show notes. We invite you to pop across to our very vibrant listener community on Facebook, which is a private group, and we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Also, a huge thank you to Lucy, who manages our social strategy, and to Kerry and Bree, who manage our Facebook listener group. All of our episodes are transcribed to increase accessibility, and the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. It's produced and hosted by Brian McDowell and Troy Waller, with all sound production and editing done by Troy Waller. You can find all these links in our link tree in the show notes. 